I'm Catherine Amirfar. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome, everyone. I'm Cal Raustiala, and I'm welcoming you back to another episode of the uh, International Law Behind the Headlines podcast brought to you by the American Society of International Law. And today, as our guest, I'm really pleased to have Monica Hakimi, a friend of the society, the James Campbell Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School, and an expert on use of force issues. And I've asked Monica to come on the podcast to talk about issues surrounding the use of force, Uh, Of course, right now, as we speak or about to speak, the situation in Ukraine continues to uh, loom in a dangerous direction. And that's sort of the impetus for our discussion. But there are, of course, many other uh, aspects of the use of force and many other examples we may draw on. But I thought that was a good enough reason to invite Monica on. So, Monica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, yeah. It's great to have you. And maybe we could just start with uh, the example of Ukraine. And, you know, I think most listeners are familiar with the framework, the basic framework in Article 2.4 of the UN Charter. We could talk a bit about how that works. But what strikes me about the current situation and what really intrigues me is that at the moment, we don't see any use of force by Russia against Ukraine, but we certainly see pretty extensive threats. And of course, the word threat does appear in Article 2.4 of the UN Charter. So maybe help us kind of get our minds around how to think about threats in this larger framework. Okay, sure. Well, as you suggest, Article 2.4 of the Charter prohibits not only the use of force, but also the threat of the use of force against, you know, she used the full language, the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. And as you also say, the situation in Ukraine seems to involve um, the threat of the use of force, given the buildup of military activity on the border. Um, But what counts as an unlawful threat of force um, is not really very well defined, um, and there's not a whole lot of practice on it. So we have some uh, material, for example, in the ICJ jurisprudence to which we might look to try to figure out, like, how to define what qualifies as an unlawful threat, but it's an area that in which there's quite a bit of ambiguity. Do we know much about the history of the insertion of the word threat into the charter's language? I mean, I'm sure this was negotiated out in San Francisco in 1945, but I'm just curious, you know, it obviously makes sense at a practical level. Threats were a common feature of world politics for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if we have any specifics that you're aware of or, you know, what the thinking was in terms of including it. You know, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, so I'm sh- I agree with you. I'm sure that there is in the um, drafting history of the charter reference to uh, threats and the use of force. But I'm not actually sure what the sort of like conversational dynamics were that led to the decision to include it in Article 2.4. That would be a good research project for any student who's listening. Yeah. I mean, in general, I completely agree with you. And and I've, I've thought as I've kind of mulled over this issue, threats seem somewhat understudied. Is that a fair statement? Maybe, maybe we don't have enough research on threats. Yeah, I think it is a fair statement. So, you know, so here's like 
what we know. We know that from the ICJ's decision and the uh, advisory opinion in the nuclear weapons case, that a threat to use force is not unlawful if the use of force um, that is threatened would itself be lawful. So to, for example, if a state were to say, look, if you attack me, we're going to attack you back, that would be basically a, a statement of the right to act in self-defense. And it might be, a, it is a threat to use force in some sense, but it would not be an unlawful threat to use force, the advisory opinion suggests. So in order for it to be unlawful, it has to be a threat to do that which is otherwise not permitted. And of course, there are lots of uses of force that are not permitted. And so the question is like how you then try to define that space. And there are some ways to think about it. So for example, one idea that exists is it's unlawful when it is like pretty direct and concrete and specific. Like we will use force against you if you don't vote for us, what, whatever we want to do at the Security Council. Like that's a, a sort of tit for tat kind of direct threat to use force in some coercive way. And so some suggest like, well, that's, those are the criteria for identifying that which is unlawful. Um, so that might be one way of trying to carve the space a little bit more specifically than just saying anything which is um, which which is not otherwise lawful is unlawful. Yeah, that makes sense. So so in a way, a threat pursuant to a self-defense claim would sort of per se be fine, assuming the self-defense claim was valid. So so if a state said, if you attack me, I will fight back, essentially, that is a kind of a threat in a narrow way, but that's a perfectly fine threat because it's consistent with the framework that the use of force, that the law of the use of force provides. Is that exactly. like I'm yeah, actually exactly. complicating it, but that's, is that? That's right. That's, that's the suggestion in the advisory. And that's how I read the advisory opi- um, opinion in the nuclear weapons case. Right, right. So now we're in a realm, if we go back to Ukraine, or for that matter, we could talk about Taiwan, uh, or perhaps there are other examples as well, in which one state threatens another, but, you know, I'm sure a self-defense claim will be constructed if there is in fact conflict, because that seems to always happen. But but there's not a plausible self-defense claim at the moment. The notion that Russia is defending itself against Ukraine is, I think, we can sort of reject that. And so a threat uh, to do something or not do something on the part of Ukraine would seem to be per se illegal. I guess part of the problem is sometimes the threat isn't issued verbally. So I guess this is what I find intriguing about it is if you put a lot of troops on the border in a menacing manner, that's certainly threatening. Uh, but, you know, let's posit that Putin hasn't actually threatened to invade, which I, I don't think he has, but I don't, I don't know. I haven't kept track of all the things he says, but let's say he never did say that, but just kind of left the troops there for a while, uh, you know, pointing guns. That seems pretty threatening. And so maybe something could happen in Ukraine, but there's like a causal connection and that we'd have to draw out. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I do. I agree with you. You know, it's interesting. I, 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 I take that wrinkle and I want to add to it. So so I take the wrinkle in the following way. Um, you, you know, uh, if Belarus consents to Russia's um, uh, buildup of forces in the Belarusian territory, then that's a consensual operation. And as you suggest, it's not necessarily threatening on its own terms. Like there are lots of circumstances in which a state consents to another state's 
military presence in its territory. And we don't consider those to be inherently threatening. So it needs to be something, there needs to be something more to that. There is, there, and so what's the more in the Ukraine context, you might ask? Like, And it seems to be that the thing that's more is that Russia is specifically suggesting that the buildup of troops is connected to a desire to disrupt the current uh, security architecture and to institute real policy change. So, right, it's, but it's, it's directing those threats to the extent that it's threatening. It's making noises of threat to basically NATO um, and saying, like, don't let Ukraine um, accede to the to NATO and be a me- become a member of NATO. And also, like, we want to change the extent to which NATO is right on our borders. And so it is ma- it is suggesting that it is building up its troops um, in relation to or c- concurrently with um, making these kinds of noises about trying to disrupt the security architecture. But still, there's a question, is that kind of more general threat even sufficient to constitute a threat, an unlawful threat to use force. And if you're of the sort who thinks, no, 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 the threat has to be very, very specific, directed, and in a sort of tit for tat kind of coercive form, it's still not clear, I think, that Russia, Russia's current conduct would satisfy that's that pretty stringent standard. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think implicit in everything you said, just to draw it out, obviously, is, you know, of course, the United States, neither of us are are in the U.S. government at the moment. But I think if you pressed, if we had the legal advisor here on this call and asked, you know, well, is it necessarily threatening to to mass troops uh, in another country with an aim towards a third country? The U.S. would be very hesitant to endorse that notion because that is essentially our security strategy and has been for 75 years. So. You know, NATO itself, uh, we have the entire Seventh Fleet sitting in Japan. You know, we have uh, 50,000 troops or so in Korea right now. We we are big users of the strategy. Now, I think we would immediately argue that those are not threatening anyone. Those are defensive troops. But of course, so too would Putin. So it is a pretty tricky and slippery uh, slope uh, to kind of uh, find ourselves on. So I agree with everything you're saying, and I'm really, you know, now it's even a more interesting question of what what the line is, or it's even making me wonder, does it make sense to include threats? Uh, if we were to revamp the charter today, uh, would we want to get rid of the word threat because it's really not doing any work? Does that, does that seem too extreme to you? Well, it might seem a little too extreme. Um, you know, the other example that came, for the following reason, the other example that came to mind as... I've been sort of paying attention to what's happening in Ukraine is the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. So there too, right, Russia started moving um, weapons and they were offensive. They were understood to be offensive weapons, but still moving weapons into Cuban territory with the presumably with the Cuban government's consent. And that was, I think, viewed to be a very threatening action. And it right. And it um, it instigated like an entire range of follow-up actions by the United States before the Organization of American States and so on. And so that's actually, I think, an example in which if you use state practice, like what what states actually do in, in on the ground as some kind of indicator of what they understand the law to be, I think that's an example in which they were responding to a threat 
a perceived threat and we're treating it as unlawful. And actually, I would say that the situation in Ukraine in some sense resonates with that example, because here too, states are responding to Russia's behavior as if it is outside the norm of acceptable behavior, as if it is unlawful. And in some way, you know, and then they're using the United States, for example, has used some of the language of Article 2.4, if not specifically saying this is an, an unlawful act in violation of Article 2.4. You know, the United States has said things like, we will not allow Russia to do anything contrary to the territorial integrity or political independence of Ukraine. Um, and that is why we will not accede to its demands on NATO, right? So um, there is some, it's sort of coded in legal language, at least in a subtext. And so that might be one way of understanding this incident as indicative of the kind of thing that states might treat as or understand to be a threat, an unlawful threat. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I guess kind of playing devil's advocate for a minute, isn't it the case though that part of what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis and arguably is happening here is that Western powers uh, or the Western alliance, the West broadly understood, if we want to define it, uh, America's friends, are taking the view that Russia is a bad actor or the Soviet Union was a bad actor, a dangerous actor, and acting differently in response to a situation, you know, you, you deem the weapons in the Cuban Missile Crisis to be offensive. Um, but of course, you know, weapons, we might query, is a weapon ever really offensive or defensive, especially if it's like a missile? And so, you know, we could imagine an alternative universe in which the United States is doing many of the same things. And somehow we're always friendly because we know we know that our intentions are good. And this is kind of the crux of the security dilemma, that what one state sees as benign and defensive, another state sees as malign and offensive and acts accordingly. So I guess I wonder, I agree with you that you could view the history here as a gloss on a particular text in the charter, but it also seems incredibly contextual. And so much is driven by our perceptions of kind of Russian malignancy, which, you know, again, speaking frankly, Russia has been a dangerous actor and the Soviet Union did act dangerously. And so I don't really believe what I'm saying, but I guess I just feel like there are many people out there who would who would kind of push back on this. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think actually I might say it a little bit differently. I think the bias might be a status quo bias <laughs> as opposed to a like are you a good actor or a bad actor? I think what um, is more likely to be treated as a threat is an effort to be disrupt, to use basically um, a shift in military operations to significantly disrupt the current, what you might order architecture and, um, and, and therefore like implicitly or explicitly use that threat to try to get someone else to change how the, whatever, their security position. So there might be a status quo bias um, in the way we're now talking about an unlawful threat. Um, and that might be, that might be good or bad, depending on like how disruptive you want the, you, how much room for disruption you want in the world. Like, I don't right. think, it's, I, th I think it could be quite bad. Like it could be quite oppressive to say like, there's no way you know, of taking the position of, for example, adversaries of the United States just to play devil's advocate, um, as you were doing, 
you could say like there's no way for adversaries of the United States to push back on the expansive military footprint that the United States has all over the world without itself threatening some action that causes the United States to reposition itself. But that threat um, right, require is, and that's the disruptive force, that threat might be necessary to get the change, but it also might be unlawful or perceived to be unlawful precisely because it's designed to cause that change. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting analysis. And a lot turns on what you think the status quo is and what's your historical kind of frame. I think if you are Russia, you might say the very notion that Ukraine could join NATO. In fact, you know, that's part of the issue is to sort of we'll get into maybe Finlandization in a second. But the very notion that that NATO seems unwilling to say absolutely there's no way Ukraine's ever going to join and make that credible in some manner is part of the problem from the point of view of Russia. And so let's imagine that they did join in the way that some other former Soviet republics have joined NATO. Uh, that's threatening under a kind of status quo theory of the sort that you're you're putting forward. And you know, so I think Russia may say, "Well, look, your historical lens is is pretty short. I'm going to take a bigger view and say this was always Soviet uh, terrain. This was always our sphere of influence. This was always essentially Russian." And that's not a crazy claim with regard to Ukraine. It might be extreme, um, but it's not It's not without any foundation. So, yeah, it's an interesting analysis, but it seems like it just pushes you into a historical debate about what the true status quo is. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that might be right. Um, I guess one difference could be that... Um, you know, since we're having this conversation about the law, one difference could be that uh, what Russia is trying to is perceiving as a threat is something that, at least under the terms of the charter, Ukraine ought to be entitled to do yes. um, on its own and that NATO states ought to be entitled to do. So the problem is that Russia is treating as a threat, right, the accession to NATO by Ukraine and other states, which under the charter, their territorial and integrity and political independence ought to enable them to do. Yes, I think that's a very good point. I suppose on the other hand, if we kept going with that analysis, if a war were to break out and Russia were to invade, it would still be a violation of uh, the charter, though under the charter's terms itself, Russia Russia would veto any actions in the Security Council against, against itself. And that's also baked into the system and was deliberately designed that way. So in essence, there might be a legal violation, but enforcement has been taken off the table as far back as Yalta for this precise reason. Yeah, that's right. Although self-defense is still available, um, of course, as an yes. enforcement measure, collective self-defense is still available as an enforcement measure. But that's right. The a Security Council action would be impossible in these conditions. Yeah, yeah. So I want to just raise, I realize this isn't necessarily a, a legal dimension, but it has uh, it has some parallels. And many people brought up the example of Finland as a state where in I have a particular interest in this. My family is from Finland. And uh, Finlandization was a process in the uh, in the Cold War where Finland essentially was not was neither east nor west and sort of permitted to have independence, but was very beholden to uh, Russian preferences or Soviet preferences at the time. And so different people have offered this as a possible uh, way out of this current impasse with regard to Ukraine, though it's not one that... Um, I think has drawn a lot of support, but, you know, with that, I guess, is there any legal barrier to a state willingly, it's almost like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, 
if, a, if Ukraine were to do that and to say, okay, Russia, we are going to, um, you know, not, uh, not really engage with the West. We're definitely not going to join NATO. We're going to more or less do what you say, just keep the troops out. In essence, acquiescing to the threat. Is that problematic legally in any way, or is that just perfectly fine? It may be a bad political outcome, but international law has nothing to say about that. I think, I mean, I think international law has little to say about the Ukrainian government's um, decision to, to make that choice, right? It, it might have something to say about the conditions under which it's making that choice. But yeah, I think international law has very little to say about whether Ukraine um, might have its own volition, well, own volition is, uh, is, a, is a laden word in this context. Right, but Ukraine, right. The Ukrainian government might just say like, yeah, okay, like, look, we understand the facts of the world and we're choosing the less conflictual path. Um, right. I don't think one would, I don't think there would be a reasonable basis to say that Ukraine is acting unlawfully in that context. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I think that makes sense. Um, let's talk about self-defense. You brought that up. And is there a way in which right now Ukraine can engage in self-defense well, legally? It, yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, oftentimes, so let's just say Article 2.4 of the Charter prohibits the use of force, um, and then it permits it in self-defense if an armed attack occurs. And so there's a question whether anticipatory self-defense is ever lawful under article under the charter or whether a state actually needs to be attacked before it responds with defensive force. Um, and so Ukraine has not actually, well, it has been attacked in the past, but in the, in the current moment, um, there's not an, in, Russia, as far as I know, has not yet um, crossed the border and actually committed an attack against Ukraine, um, you know, putting Crimea aside. So, so if you take a very stringent view on anticipatory self-defense, I think most would say, well, if Ukraine has not yet been attacked, then it doesn't have a right to act defensively, to use force in self-defense. Um, I think most, a lot of people are willing to expand um, the parameters for when defensive force is permissible and to say like in cases where an attack is actually imminent and oftentimes the phrase that is used like as in troops marching toward the border imminent then <laughs> anticipatory self-defense might be lawful it's a, this might count but even here i think the fact that russia has not yet made clear its intention to attack and that you know a number of people are saying yeah russia is not actually our intelligence suggests that russia has not made the final decision to attack and might not ever actually attack um, means that again, if you're that the, if you if you're assuming a certain uh, a restrictive but not totally restrictive view of anticipatory self-defense, that Russia probably still has not crossed the threshold to entitle Ukraine to act in self-defense or other states to act in collective self-defense. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, though. It is troubling if you are Ukrainian and, you know, you have this giant, very, very powerful neighbor and there are all these troops kind of masked on your border in a threatening way and you can't do anything about it until they start. It, that is a sort of disturbing implication of the way the law is constructed. But I, I think your analysis is correct. And I, I can't really disagree with it. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's interesting, actually, I saw... Um, I also have not paid attention to like each and every word that has been exchanged back and forth, but I did see, um, I think the, pre I think President Biden was asked, well, 
um, have you decided that uh, that the United States might respond um, on Ukraine's behalf or that Ukraine can respond in self-defense? And Biden made the point of saying, no, not it, an attack is not imminent because we don't believe that Putin has made the decision to attack. So I wonder whether his lawyers fed him that language. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that might be the case, and it might also be diplomatically, psychologically, uh, making it seem, you know, like there is an off-ramp here that everyone's trying to find. And, you know, what, no one knows what's really going on in Putin's head, but it, it does seem like one thing he wants to establish is there are real limits to what NATO can do, to what the West can do in terms of encroaching on Russia's uh, near abroad or sphere of influence, and that it's legitimate to have spheres of influence, um, which, again, I think international law doesn't say that much about, though 2-4, the language of 2-4 is certainly undercut some of the notion of spheres of influence. But, um, you know, we talked about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and certainly the U.S. has long, long had the view that the Caribbean is a special zone. And I think we still would take that view even today. Uh, if there's a Chinese base set up tomorrow and you know, in the Caribbean, I think we would, we would not like that. Um, and that's just an interesting thing to think about too, as an aside, is that we're facing a world in which we're going to see China's already starting to build out these bases, Djibouti and so forth. We're going to see more of that. How does that fit into the analysis of status quos and, uh, you know, threats and so forth we've been talking about, but in any event, I think, uh, that language might be legally derived, but it might also just be politically expedient or both. Yeah. I would say probably both. Yeah. Or even okay. if it's not, even if it were not handed to him by his lawyers, it might be just now part of the political discourse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot of really important issues in about 25 minutes. Are there any points we haven't raised any critical issues you think we've ignored? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I guess just to say, I agree with your final point that we, we do seem to be in a moment during which uh, the security architecture is changing in subtle ways and not so subtle ways. And that I think this is an area where, as always, it'll be really interesting to see and a little bit frightful at times to see what is going to end up happening. Yeah, yeah, no, agreed. And I think going back to where we kind of began, I'm even more convinced now that uh, this is an excellent topic for for research, for, uh, you know, for, for law students or those doing uh you know, getting 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 some writing done in whatever capacity around international law threats and their you know their interpretation seems like a pretty important area to explore. Agree, agree. Okay, well, thank you so much, Monica, for coming on the podcast. Great, thank you. It's been fun. 